Good morning. It's good to be back with you this morning. It is Palm Sunday. We are in Romans. Uh, and so the question, of course, is whether or not I can preach a Palm Sunday sermon out of Romans 10. And I'd like to think that the odds are slightly better than Oral Roberts making it into the round of Sweet 16, for those of you who know what that may mean. Um, it, is a, it is a passage because it talks about Israel's hope and expectation. And the idea that sometimes it's hard to see the answer to our prayers, not because they aren't big and powerful or right in front of us, but because we can look even past them to the things that cause us to fear or to the problems we perceive. George Orwell, in an article in 1946, that is the author of uh, Animal Farm, a critique of uh, socialism and communism, and he was a regular contributor to uh, British newspapers throughout his life. In the midst of an interesting debate in 1946 about whether or not they'd ever be able to provide enough coal to keep their industries going, one of Orwell's comments at the end of his essay was simply this, to see what is in front of one's nose needs a a consistent struggle. To see what's in front of one's nose needs a consistent struggle. In the flow of his argument, he was saying that sometimes the things that are closest to us, we look past. We look past them to what may happen in the future or the dangers or the fears. And there is a way in which Paul is going to remind the children of Israel, even as he reminds the Gentiles, about the power of the Messiah and who Jesus is and how him riding in, as we remember this morning, was right in front of their nose. And yet they looked past. And so I certainly know that in my own life, I need to be reminded of what is in front of my nose and not look past and around the corner and to those things which may be fears I imagine real or perceived. Our context this morning certainly requires us to remember Romans 10 verse 13. The theological context for what we're about to read in Romans 10 and follow, uh, 14 and following is, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How often is that something we are tempted to look past, either because of our own sin or the sins of another, or those things which feel like they're going to overwhelm us in the moment. We have been in a season for over a year where we feel or are really being overwhelmed by circumstances. But is that what is right in front of our nose as far as our comfort, our security, and our assurance? Romans 10.13 reminded us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And practically, what is in front of our nose And as we read this passage, I want to encourage you to think about what God had given to Israel. We can read a passage like this and be uh, tempted 
to think through the lenses of the prophets. Not that the prophets thought this way, but when you read the prophets, we can be discouraged that what God is really on about is a series of rules and regulations that the children of Israel just didn't live up to. And so now they're getting taken to the woodshed because they've been bad. I don't know that that's what actually was in front of their noses. Was it an Old Testament God of wrath and judgment who made promises and expected unbelievable and superhuman efforts out of his people? Is there really a character difference from the God in the Old Testament to the Jesus we imagine in the New Testament? Let's put the text in front of us. Romans 10, 14 through 21. Hear now God's word. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they uh, to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With uh, With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask again for us to see the beauty of our God power of a Messiah who rode in on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna, knowing that that week he would bear the fickleness of human commitment. We pray that we would see the faithfulness of our God, the faithfulness of a God who rides into the midst of his people, the faithfulness of a God who defeats death for his people the faithfulness of a God who is right before us. May we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And whatever is said that does not point to you, that does not encourage your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So what is at the end of Israel's nose? What is right there that has always been there for them, and yet they have lost sight of what is in front of them? Despite the works and the efforts of the prophets, 
the Holy Spirit in so many ways in the Old Testament, what was right in front of them? This is not a text, just as a quick aside, about world missions. It just doesn't happen to be about world missions, although there are certain principles about going and teaching that make sense. This is still in the midst of a discussion as to God's faithfulness to Israel and how it is that despite a lot of rejection, God is still working in and through Israel, that God has brought Israel's purposes to their conclusion, and that what is happening with the Gentiles is exactly what the Jews were always supposed to be about and what God was doing through them, through the Messiah who was born of the Jewish people, to engraft them into the same covenant line, the same covenant line. We're going to read next week about the Gentiles being engrafted as wild shoots into the vine. He didn't cut down a vine and start with a whole new vine. And all of the imagery, even when he does cut down a vine, is that that same stump sprouts again. We have a God who has consistently been faithful to his people. And what Paul is talking about in Romans 10 is the faithfulness of God. A God who rides in. A God who is right in front of Israel on this day, Palm Sunday. And at that moment, they seem to see what is right in front of them. And yet, like all of us, they too, very quickly, forget what is right in front of them. So that same presence by Friday is going to be one that they are so angry with that they will cry out, crucify him. The same thing in front of their nose, and yet they've missed the richness They've, written, they've missed the truth. So how do we walk through this passage, both unpacking what I'm saying, but also being encouraged? Because what we want to remember is the joy of what Palm Sunday indicates and how in the Holy Spirit the delight and joy of the kingdom of God symbolized and physically manifested in Jesus is the kingdom you and I get to live in. The ethics and the character of that God that we confessed earlier in the worship service is a loving and gracious God. The consequence of our own brokenness and sin robs us of the joy of being who we were created to be. The consequence of that is that our sin needs to be stopped. But to spend this time focused on did Israel meet God's standard and if they didn't, is God just whacking them because they weren't good enough? That to me is a reduction of the richness of what's right in front of our nose because it will never let us have a relationship with Christ, never have us Uh, rest in the Holy Spirit, never delight in the presence of our Heavenly Father if we continue to see this relationship transactionally between a God who makes unreasonable demands upon His people and then judges them for failing to meet His high ethical standards. What What is at the end of Israel's nose? Well, let's start in... Uh, 
what they do not see and what they do not hear. Verse 15 and 16, the good news, the gospel, the evangelion. What is that, what is that about? The good news is that a God who in the Old Testament redeems individuals like Tamar, who is being disrespected and poorly treated by Judah and his sons, or rescues a Joseph who's been, well, something of a pill as a brother, sold into slavery, and then does everything right and everything wrong happens to him until the very end. We have a God who keeps reaching out his hand and restoring, let alone what we see in the story and the teachings of the Exodus. And when we read all of those complicated verses in Deuteronomy and in Numbers and in Leviticus, how often do we recognize what an amazing place? God imagined that when he gave his children a land flowing with milk and honey with a whole lot that they did not even begin to build that was gifted to them by him, that they could live with such generosity that when something bad happened, there were cities of refuge so that just vengeful justice and lynching and a quick family reaction could be stayed so that justice and mercy could be meted out. And he had such a plan for the reality of a broken and fallen world where people got into debt and people lost their land and had to sell it that he was going to create a rhythm of life in Israel where families could be restored after a generation or two. And that there would be places where the poor could glean from the edges of the fields and that he would promise so much abundance that every seven years the farmers and the land could take a year off and not worry about famine. And that he wanted to increase them in such a way that they would have children and abundance and family and life. That's what he held out. Creation itself, restored and renewed. At least the inception of it, the beginning of it. That's what was held out to Israel. It's tempting for us, and perhaps scholarship and our own human mindset has us focusing in on what happens to unruly children or rules about washing hands. And Jesus rightly reimagining and refocusing those images. But to focus simply on the judgment, the consequences of rejecting the goodness of God. Because what were they rejecting? They were rejecting not working on the seventh year. And instead saying, I don't trust the goodness of God. I'm going to go ahead and plant seven years in a row. We're not going to restore people whose families have fallen into 
the tragedy of debt and maybe a knuckle-headed uncle who gambled the family estate away. And now, a few years later, the children are not held accountable. And that land is restored. And there is a way in which mercy and justice are pulled together. What were they rejecting? What were they saying was insufficient? What were they saying wasn't enough to give them security and comfort? It wasn't a God who started with, here are the rules. It has always been that God starts with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. I have already redeemed you. I have already shown you love, and I will take you to a land flowing with milk and honey, and let me tell you who I am. And therefore, let me tell you who you are. You will be faithful and generous and loving and respectful and truth-telling. Was it really, trust me, my sin life is a constant denial of the goodness of God. But that's not what's in front of my nose. Let's run through this text in a little bit more detail. The gospel is presented in verses 15 and 16. They preached unless uh, they'd been sent. Well, there was someone sent, and they did hear the good news. And the prophets and the, the, the priests read and told them about the goodness of God. Moses tells them about the goodness of God and His promises for them and warns them if they stop seeing what's right in front of their nose as they look across the Jordan River, as they see what had happened when God had brought them through the Red Sea, when He brought water time and time again, every time they thought that God, who was right in front of their nose, sitting in the midst of them, whether on Sinai or later on in the tabernacle, was going to abandon them to their thirst, it was right in front of their nose. A God who dwelt in their presence. They saw the gospel. Moses' generation saw the gospel. The good news of a God who redeems. Later generations would see again and again the deliverance of God and His abundance and His mercy and His generosity, and it was right there. And then they would say, ah, yes, but what about tomorrow? Maybe it's better to cover our bets. Maybe we shouldn't be quite as generous. Maybe we should plant a little bit more. Maybe we should push out our harvest to the edge of the field. Maybe adding a God or two isn't bad because we're covering our bases. What if our God gets bored and goes someplace else and we can't get a hold of him for a few days? We should probably have a couple of other numbers to call if we need a business deal to go through, or the harvest to go well, or a child to be born healthy. Verses 18, interestingly enough, and there's great debate about this, is a quote from Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is about the heavens declaring the glory of God, which makes a lot of sense given what Paul has just said in Romans 8 about creation groaning, and the power of the resurrection, which Paul saw not only as something that will happen in the future, but a very fundamental change to life itself. That death had been defeated and put on the ropes. That in the middle of history, the power of death had been broken 
and that a transformed, not just a regenerated, but a transformed Christ who both still ate fish, but also was different. Who was in a body that would no longer be subject to decay and death and pain and suffering in the way that a fallen human body is. And so the question is, and I'm going to encourage you to see this, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In context of Psalm 19, that is creation. That is the heavens declaring. That is the mountains. That is the seas. That is the skies. That is creation itself attests to the fact that God is a good God. And then in Jesus, creation itself is being restored and renewed. That this trajectory towards death and destruction and decay, the corner has been turned. That Jesus' death and His resurrection indicate that what has always been true in some miraculous way since the fall is not going to be true for much longer. That all that has been true will be made untrue. And that eternal truth, capital T truth, will be restored. And so we have this allusion to the restoration of creation in verse 18, that the voice of creation itself is again declaring to Jew and Gentile alike that our God reigns. Then verse 19, we go back to Moses. But I ask, did Israel not understand? And Moses says this in Deuteronomy 32, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Moses has already walked through in this great speech. And if you know Deuteronomy and you know where we are, Joshua's already been designated as Moses' replacement. Moses already knows he's not going to get to go into the promised land because of his own not seeing what was in front of his nose. But knowing, not eternally, that he was outside, but knowing that this side of glory in this creation that declares the glory of God, and let's face it, Canaan at that time declared the power and the glory of God in the fact that it was a place running with milk and honey. It was garden-like. It was what creation was supposed to do in relationship to human beings. Provide abundantly for our sustenance. And he's looking at it, and Israel is about to cross over into it. Not only a promise of spiritual intimacy with God, but physical transformation and provision in God's good creation. And Israel was going to squander it. And at this point, Moses reminds them in shall we say, a more aggressive or slightly angry tone of the covenant promises that I will make you a blessing to all the nations. If you're not willing to be a blessing to all the nations, if you're going to turn inward, if you're going to oppress your own poor, if you're going to go worship other gods, if you're going to do all the things I tell you not to, for whatever reasons, pragmatically, you think are more important than following me, just so you know, I'm not going to give up on you or the Gentiles. And part of the judgment, part of what you are going to experience is the Samaritan woman at the well. And the fact that her evangelistic work is 
in some ways more effective than Jesus' evangelistic work among his own people prior to Pentecost. And that he's going to embarrass them time and time again with Gentiles who aren't even seeking God going, that, that is amazing. That I can put my faith in. That transforms my heart. We could go into a number of applications for us and the church. What we know is in Revelations, the churches are warned much the way Israel is about forgetting what's in right in front of their nose. Of how those who have the knowledge and the intimacy and have seen the faithfulness of God can look past it. Look past it to their own sin, look past it to their own needs and their lusts and their longings and their fears and the immediacy. This promise that God would be faithful and that at times even His own people would be embarrassed and angered by his generosity to people who had not called on his name. And I don't think any of us are discouraged about what's going on in China, but it is one of those things where as we lament the decline of the church in the West, where we've had such a rich history in many ways, and challenging history, but to see, in one sense, all of our prayers for revival seemingly answered in the explosion of Christianity... In China, where tens of millions have come to faith, where God is bringing in, in the midst of His grace, an amazing harvest in a nation that we barely understand and are certainly concerned politically and socially about. But our brothers and sisters are being added to the number of Christ at an embarrassing rate. For some of us who imagine all the riches of what we have here, all of the ability to do conferences, all of the ability to do evangelism, all of the ability to use TV, all of the abilities we have, and to see such little response. We praise God for it. We're humbled by it. But we wonder if we've missed what was right in front of our nose. Chapter, verse 20, brings us back to Isaiah. And I was just reflecting on the fact that I don't know how we can read Paul very well if we don't read Isaiah almost all the time. The number of quotes from Isaiah in chapters, well, all of these chapters, it's been a steady diet of either Isaiah or Deuteronomy for the last 10 chapters. But he quotes Isaiah again when he says, I have, been, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself those who did not ask for me. This is covenant cosmic restoration. This is what he was talking to Abram about. This is the role of Israel. The role of Israel is to be the conduit and the means not just for their own salvation and protection, not only for the promised land and that becoming a wonderful insular place of security and power for them, 
but the reality that Israel was supposed to have the covenant promises of God in and through them in such a way that the Eden of Canaan spread throughout the world. And we get a, temptate, we get a, we get a hint of this in the reign of Solomon, where all of the wise people are coming, and Israel is this amazing, beautiful place where wisdom and all of the nations are being blessed, and that power, that opportunity, the ability to be a blessing to all the nations is always God's encouragement and calling and plan for his people. And God delights for you and I, as just as he delights for our forebearers in Israel, this great vine that he has tended throughout creation and history, that he has loved, that he has pruned, that he delights to see produce fruit that will pour out wine for the nations, sweetness and richness, blessing. That's the calling right in front of our nose. To be a blessing. As Israel's God rode in to Jerusalem on that day to be a blessing to his people, that his people might be a blessing to the nations. It's not about keeping rules or wondering if we're better or worse than somebody else. It is the freedom and the opportunity to do good when our hand finds good to do. And to know that we have had good done to us. That in front of us is a God who lovingly restored us from death itself. Whose good news is that he redeems people out of slavery and puts them in gardens. And this is such a powerful imagery and such a powerful reality. That you can have a garden and you can enjoy the promises and the power of the kingdom of God even in a concentration camp, even in prison. You can sing and see the very foundations of a prison rocked by the power of the Holy Spirit through an earthquake. It is the beauty of God's character in and through us that can be brought even into the darkest situations of the world. Because Canaan, as beautiful as it was creation-wise, was a place of great darkness spiritually. God brings light into darkness, restoring and renewing it. That's what he's done for me. It's what he's done for you. And therefore, our joy, our hope for the kingdom of God is not in what we may see just around Jesus' face as we look at him and we see the problem and we see the economic calamity, we see the problems and fears of wars, we see the immediacy of being in prison, we see the immediacy of perhaps being in the midst of either judgment or persecution. And we see those things behind Jesus and we start acting out of what is behind him, what we will go through with him. And we're tempted to make pragmatic decisions that deny what's right in front of our face. It's not that Israel wasn't legitimately tempted to look beyond Jesus. Great powers arose around them. The enemies they faced were bigger and numerically superior. It's not as if we can't identify with what caused Israel to look around and say, 
that's nice that you're here, but really I've got to deal with that problem coming down the street. But look at who's coming down the street. Look at who's establishing his kingdom. Look at who rides in on this day. Can we really look any other place? Should we look any other place? The last verse tells us this, I have held out both my hands, Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah, all day long to a disobedient and contrary people. Our confession of sin today talked about, uh, or the, the quote about the tyranny of being, uh, what is the exact word? I had it just a moment ago. A man's respectable goodness. Sometimes our respectable goodness makes it hard for us to admit that we are often contrary and disobedient people. We have good reasons for it. We imagine that the people who are really bad are the people who are the ones who fit into this category. The good news is in Christ, I don't have to have respectable goodness. I have Jesus. I have the one who rode in on my place. And I can trust that if I see what is right in front of me, if I keep my eyes on him, that I can rejoice in seeing a people, not his people, come to faith. I can delight in the joy and the restoration and the glory of creation. I can be at peace with a God who has held out his hand and picked me up and restored me and seats me in a hall full of princes and princesses, powers and royalty. That is what is before us. That is what we are here to invite others into. That is the God we serve, a God who wants us to sit in the halls of joy and peace and this side of the consummation to bring that same joy and peace to a world that so desperately needs it to remind them of what is right in front of their face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, at times, you reveal to us in the negative the consequence of our failure to see what and who you are. We ask on this day, that we would delight in the joy of a loving God who brings mercy and generosity, who sees people no one else sees, lepers, blind folks, people who were pushed off to the margin, women of disrepute, men who had lost their honor and become tools of the government and tax collectors, all restored. You see the beauty in all of us, the beauty you bring. Lord, may we reflect on what we see in you that we might reflect to the world who you are. In Christ's name, amen.